I've listened to the Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest for months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. everybody and welcome back to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me is connor who are you i don't know who are you i don't know feels like you exist in a memory that i just can't find yeah we've really grown apart as collaborators and friends since the end of the last episode (laughs) and we're back this is our reunion this is the spin it reunion oh this is spin it hell freezes over (laughs) (laughs) i love it Yes, that's right. We're back. Back and better than ever. Oh, let's not go that far. Back and the same as ever. Eh, let's just leave it at we're back and ever. We're back forever <laughs> to do another episode on another album by another artist and give it another score. That is what we do. Mm-hmm. And this week, that album is The Low End Theory, and that artist is A Tribe Called Quest. And that score will be revealed later in the episode. We can't give you everything right off the bat. It's TBD. T- well, it's not TBD. I mean, I've deed it already. It's oh. TBA. T- TBA. TBA. Yeah. To be announced later. But it's been determined. All is set in stone. TBR to be revealed. Oh, mysterious. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and make a pretty wild assumption. Okay. That you have never listened to A Tribe Called Quest in your life. How dare you assume that? How dare I be so correct? How dare you be so correct? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's what I thought. I hadn't either until I picked up this album. I was looking for something to spice up the Albums of the Month playlist. I needed a little more hip-hop in my month. And I was like, I've done a lot of new hip-hop. I want to get into some older stuff, some classics. And this is where that journey led me. And this had a similar, I guess I'm going to start referring to it as the Lil Wayne effect now. Because when we did the Lil Wayne episode, I talked about how after I listened to the Carter 3 and some other Lil Wayne stuff, I started hearing it everywhere, realizing I had heard it everywhere and recognizing it like I knew it my whole life. This album had a little bit of that, or at least a tribe called Quest did, because as soon as I was familiar with this album and some of their work, all of a sudden, Can I Kick It is just everywhere. And songs from this album, just everywhere. Like, A Tribe Called Quest is is making me experience the Lil Wayne effect. I love calling it the Lil Wayne effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's true though. It's been every there's a commercial that they play all the time in between hockey games, I think, where they play Can I Kick It? Uh-huh. It's not the Tribe Called Quest version, it's a cover, but every time I hear it I go, Yes I can. I can kick it. Consider it kicked. Or I guess you're not saying you are kicking, you're just saying that you could. That I could. Yeah. That song unfortunately is not <laughs> On the low end theory, but a lot of other songs are. Also, I just need to I just need to point out I'm uh, getting mentally boosted. It's been a while. It's been a a long while. When was the last mental boost? I don't know, but I felt like I needed it today. The shins. Your unit for the shins was mental boosts. What episode was that? 41. So Basically doubled. Yeah, we've doubled the podcast since you were last mentally boosted. That's crazy to think about. Isn't it? wonder how many how many times have we doubled the podcast. That's almost the most recent doubling of the podcast. This is episode 86. So two episodes past that. Hang on. 
I'm asking the squirrels, and they're tabulating. Oh, tabulate away, math department. Uh, we've done it. We've doubled six times so far, according to the math department. Is that it? Yeah, well, if you think about it, then they've given me their math. I'm checking their work. No, that's not right, because then we would never have... For us to double from episode... It depends on your starting point. Right. From episode one, we've doubled six times, but... Right, so we've doubled six times. Every other episode represents a doubling. <laughs> not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. From episode three, wouldn't it be a double? It's a double of when we were halfway through the first episode. <laughs> no. No, enough of this. The math department declared six. It's six. Get over it. Whatever. Anyway, let's talk about a tribe called Quest. All right, I'm going to set the scene. Are you ready? The scene will be set. Uh, set it. The year is 1985. The city, the city is Queens, New York. Well, I thought we were going to do a little back and forth thing there, but... Do it. Go for it. The year. 1985. The city. Queens, New York. The tribe. Called Quest. That's pretty good. The band. Oh, yeah. The band has roots. <laughs> Way back before 1985, though. 1985 is just kind of where they started officially being the tribe. Founding members Kamal Farid, also known as Q-Tip, and Malik Taylor, a.k.a. Fife Dog, were childhood friends. And Q-Tip actually went to high school with Ali Muhammad, and they started having rap battles and making beats together on cassette tapes really early on they were like 15 when they had the idea to the idea oh to turn their music making into a career <laughs> right after that they brought on Jairobi white and the rest, and the rest. Is, is history <laughs> i'm done okay good i'm gonna hold you to that the band hasn't always been known as the tribe called quest they started out with the name crush connection but eventually they made the switch <laughs> i couldn't resist <laughs> they made the switch <laughs> they made the switch to Quest, and shortly thereafter, the iconic A Tribe Called Quest. Soon, they founded a hip-hop collective called The Native Tongues, alongside notable names like Jungle Brothers, Queen Latifah, De La Soul, and Money Love. They shared a lot of different values and musical styles. They kind of had some similar tastes and patterns. And each group wanted to promote positivity. They were really focused on Afrocentrism ideals. And they worked extensively with all kinds of samples in their music, which was still a pretty new concept in popular music back in the day. Allegedly, the first sampling of something in a different song happened in 1971. The first! I missed one. That was way late. <laughs> I didn't realize you were moving so fast. <laughs> yeah. 1971 simultaneously feels way earlier than I expected for sampling, and also kind of late. I don't know. Interesting. So it feels about right. Yeah. So the group hires Cool DJ Red Alert as a manager, even though they actually would fire him by the time this record came out. And they signed on for a demo with Geffen Records, and eventually a full recording contract with Jive Records. Their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm, came out in 1990, and it was a real trailblazer pioneering blend of hip-hop fused with soul, jazz, and funk in a way that a lot of artists just weren't doing at the time. It was met with widespread critical acclaim. NME actually said, this is not rap, it's near perfection. All right now. I know. <laughs> that's quite a quote. But I mean, that's the kind of praise the album was getting and the band themselves. We're going to get that praise and more for Connor's Hippin' and Hoppin' album. This is, yeah, well, people will probably say that's not rap. They're going to say this is not rap. It is perfection. They're going to get rid of the word near. Oh, that'd be impressive. NME, if you're listening. Be prepared. Keep your eyes peeled. 
and your ears open. Right. Hopefully smiling. Mm. Well, they, they won't smile. Don't keep them smiling yet. I hope their ears are kind of sad until they hear your Hippin' and Hoppin' album. Well, they need to build up the endurance to smile through an entire album. Oh, right. Gotta get the muscle. You know, it takes more muscles for your ears to frown than to smile. That's what they say. That's what they claim. That's what the experts say. It, don't take it from me. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, take it from the experts. The People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm was also the first record ever to earn a five mic perfect rating from the source. So that's cool. Five mics. A little over a year later, they put out the album that is to be our subject today, The Low End Theory. After their first album blew up and hit it big, A Tribe Called Quest decided they really just needed to raise the bar to step it up in general as a group, as they say. I'm interested that you apparently went with this one over the one that was near perfection for us to do. I know. I'm shocked. But that's because they did step up their game for this album. Oh! Yeah, they changed a lot. They raised the bar that they also had set, and we'll talk about some of the acclaim that this album got in a minute. But it was similar, (laughs) but that's kind of why I picked this one. They recorded the low-end theory in New York City, and they actually even used, this is really cool, they used some of the same recording equipment that was used by John Lennon when he was alive and making records. Whoa. I know. And they aimed for a really minimalistic style for the record. So, as I'm sure you heard and probably took notes on, it mostly consists of drums, bass, and some really light samples, especially of jazz music. It's intriguing because it's kind of so empty, (laughs) a lot of these records. It's very interesting. Very empty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, that emphasis on heavy bass is exactly what their title, Low End Theory, is about and a reference to. The prevalent low sounds that help make this music pop and the low bass samples. That's pretty much the work of Q-Tip. He's the one that did most of the mixing and the production on the record. And he took heavy inspiration from N.W.A.'s Straight Outta Compton. Makes sense. Yeah. The other thing they tried to do on this album that made it kind of more revolutionary and notable is that they really wanted to incorporate Fife Dog into more sounds. So this record gained a lot of acclaim for Fife Dog's performance, and people really love the interplay between Fife's lyrics and Q-Tip's lyrics and the ways that they interact on the tracks. Mm. A couple key things happened around this time too, 1991-ish. Jerobi White actually left the group to pursue cooking, and even though he has some verses already recorded for The Low End Theory, they ended up getting cut. Like I mentioned too, they underwent some managerial changes and got into some hot water with their record label during this period, which they said had a big impact on the material and approach of the record, as you probably heard in songs like Rap Promoter and in Show Business, you know, all these songs that are kind of critical of that stuff. The Low End Theory debuted at number 45 on the Billboard charts, and it was certified gold in its first year. It would actually be platinum by 1995. It earned another five-mic perfect score from the source, and once again, it got praised, I mean, even more highly than their debut. It's been called a hip-hop masterpiece of the most consistent and flowing hip-hop album ever recorded, and it's pretty consistently included in the conversation for best hip-hop album of all time. And actually, therein, kind of like most of its accolades, list placements it hasn't really won a ton of awards per se Mm -hmm. but it's very recognized for its legacy and especially its influence as this groundbreaking jazz fusion hip-hop record people actually even refer to this as the sergeant peppers of hip-hop which is a pretty weighty name 
to throw around, I think. It ranked as high as number 43 on Rolling Stone's Greatest Albums of All Time list, and as of 2022, just last year, it was selected to be preserved in the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. The band and this record have inspired everyone from Logic, Ye, Kendrick Lamar, Havoc, Nas, and and it even inspired Dr. Dre to put together his solo debut record, The Chronic. So that's the low-end theory. Pretty landmark-style album. So, where, you may ask, does the band go from here? Straight into the dumpster, or...? No. No? No. Onward is where they go. But not upward. And upward, yeah, in a certain sense. They put out their third funkier LP, Midnight Marauders, in 93, performed at Lollapalooza alongside acts like the Smashing Pumpkins. Their fourth record, Beats, Rhymes, and Life, came out in 1996, and things kind of started to unravel a little bit right around then. Fife Dog started to feel really disconnected from the group, and despite the album's chart-topping success, everyone in the group had started working on outside projects, and they started bringing in new collaborators in pretty significant capacities that were really changing the dynamics of A Tribe Called Quest. In 1998, they announced that their upcoming fifth album would be their last, and they did indeed break up afterwards. But each member actually continued into pretty notable solo careers, so that's pretty great. But just like the Eagles last week, they did not always get along so well in the aftermath of their breakup. Fear not, though. Their hiatus was actually temporary. They reunited in 2004 for some recordings and some shows, which actually was partially to help Fife Dog with medical expenses that he was racking up. He was diagnosed with diabetes in the early 90s, and he needed kidney transplants. So they started working together again to help him out, which is really cool. That is cool. They continued touring for the better part of a decade and even decided to put together a new record called We Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service. They made it in 2015 and 2016, but sadly, Sadly, Fife Dog passed away in March of 2016 before the record could be released in September. Which honestly just makes the title sound like it's about him. Yeah, yeah, thank him for his service. He really did great for them. (laughs) They did one final world tour in Fife Dog's memory and honor, and the rest of the Tribe Called Quest's pending projects were released by early 2018, and they officially called it quits. They're four-time Grammy nominees. They were nominated twice for Best Rap Album, twice for Individual Songs. They were the Source Awards Group of the Year in 1994, Best International Group at the 2017 Brit Awards, and they earned the Billboard R&B slash Hip Hop Awards Founders Award in 2005. And just recently in 2022, they were nominated for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Really? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they've caught a lot of criticism for, I mean, things like this over the years. <laughs> Some of their artists that they've inducted or nominated aren't exactly rock and roll artists. We need to get Billy Joel on the line. Well, famously, <laughs> uh, just the other year, they tried to nominate Dolly Parton. Other artists are in there too, hip-hop groups and other things. And I think they do that because some of these artists they nominate are pivotal for the direction of music. Because they have a year where they're like, man, there's no big names this year. We need to go steal one from another genre. (laughs) No, it's not even that. It's just that they've decided that these artists have been influential enough to, I guess, either all of music or rock music through what they do, or that they incorporate rock music into what they do in an interesting way. But yeah, no, it's an interesting choice. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... I could see it for certain people. There's certain, like, maybe there's a 
an artist who's mainly known for country music, but had like one really, really popular rock song that was super influential or whatever. Oh, you mean Chris Gaines? Yeah. <laughs> Good old Chris Gaines. <laughs> but, you know, or something like that. Or, yeah, like somebody whose like country song was used in a really popular rock song or like as a sample. Or... Yeah. Or, or like a band like Leonard Skinner or the Eagles where country rock, southern rock, everything blurs the lines a little bit. Yeah. There are some cases where it's appropriate. But I don't know. I don't know about this one. Fair. Having only listened to one of their albums one time, I'm skeptical. <laughs> sure. Sure. Another little trivia tidbit is A Tribe Called Quest has also worked with Stussy, Pharrell Williams, and Vans to make different apparel and clothing at various stages of their career. I thought that was interesting because, I mean, some hip-hop artists are really intertwined with the fashion industry nowadays. And I kind of think you could point back to stuff like this as a place where that kind of started. Makes sense. But that's all I've got. I'm interested to hear what the mixtaper has this week. I am as well. I'm a little, once again, afraid. I've got a lot riding on now. I've got my streak to, to keep alive. Oh, yeah, that's true. Your streak of one. <laughs> I mean, a streak of one is still a streak. Is it, by definition? Okay, you're right. No, it probably has to be two or more. It needs to be a continuous series of successes, so one is not a continuous series. It's just a series. Now we got to continuous it. Yeah. So James is aiming to start his streak today against the mixtaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. All right, let's get him on out here. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Hello, and welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Uh... What's the most interesting thing you've ever mixed? The most interesting thing I've ever mixed? Yeah, I don't know what this question is going to uncover about you, but <laughs> I've just realized we've never talked about it. I have an ice cream maker that I mix things into all the time. What is your favorite ice cream flavor as a villain? What's the... what's the? Oh, that's an easy one. The most evil ice cream flavor. Oh, the most evil or my favorite? Hang on, those are two different questions. Well, I'm kind of curious about the, the most evil one. Probably banana mayo ice cream is, pr is pretty up there. There's different schools of thoughts depending on your school of evology. Oh. But banana mayo is a pretty common. Is it pretty common? Pretty, pretty common in the evil it is pretty evil well i can see why that one is not your favorite i bet your favorite is a blue vanilla ice cream with rainbow sprinkles dipped in chocolate <laughs> it sure is <laughs> that's a good callback thank you well if you're done interrogating me for deep lore do you want to just get into our facts and spins yeah let's get into our facts and spins let's do it i'm just trying to delay my inevitable doom uh, i sure hope it's inevitable now are we abandoning the mini game <laughs> where i pick the number of the fact because we really last week that you've just been getting lucky <laughs> yeah well i have a specific order this time uh so we're at least okay. abandoning it for this week but you know it's subject to to show back up it can come back some other but if you do it every week it's not as special exactly yeah it was good to keep going while i was on a nice streak it's like you know when you don't when like a fan doesn't wash their jersey as long as their sports team is winning yeah uh-huh i didn't wash my uh my super villain outfit until i lost well, i'm sure glad i won <laughs> so is connor connor's probably glad i won too <laughs> Anyway, my first one this week, and I say I have a specific order, I just mean I got a specific two that need to go last. So these first two, I'm kind of just winging it on which one I want to give you first. Winging it. Okay, just wing away. <laughs> they have a documentary. A documentary called Quest? It's not what it's called, but that, uh, that'd be great. That'd be funny if that's what it was called. What is it called? It's called Beats, Rhymes, and Life, colon, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. 
Okay. Well, we love a good title with a colon in it. That That's how you know it's a good title. That's how you know. What's this documentary about? What's it focus on? Just, I mean, that era of their music? Or is it like the band's story just in general? It seems to mainly focus on how uh, Taylor met Q-Tip. Gotcha. Gotcha. Or I should say Fife Dog met Q-Tip. Well, that's cool. That's quite a story. What's the story behind that? Do you know? I mean, they met as kids. So I don't know how the story goes. They met at the age two... Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think that really counts as meeting somebody <laughs> at the age of two. I mean, maybe I like hung out with you when I was two, or like we played together or whatever. But I don't think I met you when I was two. I realized I should have done the other one first because this one kind of builds upon the theme of the last two. Oh, so let's just jump mid fact to our other fact. No, to the next fact. <laughs> I'll do them both at once. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be interesting. <laughs> I'm for it. Uh, okay, jumping into uh, fact number two. Yeah, you know, this is like a. Uh, inception we're going inside of another fact yeah factception spin spinception 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 why did i say factception first (laughs) (laughs) the one i should have started with is that their music influenced the mcu interesting stuff okay music influenced the mcu yeah then they made a documentary about it (laughs) well (laughs) what elements of the mcu were taken from or inspired by a tribe called quest the music thank you yeah that would make sense what what parts of the music i mean the mcu is full of scores and soundtracks specifically the netflix tv show luke cage oh i haven't seen that one and i also have no idea what it's about do you like a summary i sure would like a hint yeah what's the the spark notes version of this tv show when a sabotaged experiment gives him super strength and unbreakable skin Luke Cage becomes a fugitive, attempting to rebuild his life in Harlem. And so did they use tribe music in the MCU, or did they just, like, make music that was similar to it? So one of the big scenes, or settings, I should say, of Luke Cage is this, like, nightclub, bar, live music entertainment place that the, like, bad guys operate out of. Uh And so they have all sorts of musical guests of different African-American culture and stuff, like, doing live music in the show. And then there's also just other music uses like the background music and stuff as well. Ali Muhammad is one of the ones who worked as a music supervisor for the show. Oh, that's cool. Remember I said they each had successful solo careers after Tribe. Sure did. And have you seen the show? You're a fan of the MCU. Uh-huh. So see, this is what I was telling Connor about, the Lil Wayne effect. Yep. Tribe Called Quest is everywhere. Been there all my life. All your life, you've been around them and you didn't know it. How does this tie into the documentary? Oh, it doesn't. No. The documentary fact ties into the last two, so I wanted it to be answered thir- uh, second. Oh, what? I thought this was... No, that's why I said we were going to just skip over to the other one and get it out of the way. I thought the documentary <laughs> fact built on stuff from this fact, which is why we no, no, included no, 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 this no, no, fact no, no, here, because you needed to tell me things that were from this fact. No, 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 no. In order no, no, for me no, no, to answer the documentary fact. No, 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 So they're no, just no. totally separate. Correct, which is why... We just jumped ship in the middle. <laughs> we, we jumped ship in the middle. That's why when you were like, oh, and then they made a documentary about it, I was like, well, not really. <laughs> so it's not really... It's not really like Inception at all. It's like we no. were having one dream, and then we woke up and went back to sleep, and now we're going to go back and have the first dream another time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to say that this one is true. I believe their music influenced the MCU. It totally... That, that checks out for me. I'm going to call it a fact. This is a fact. Woo! 
All right, one for one and a half. Yeah. It also looks like maybe he was actually a cameo in the show as himself in one episode, maybe on the stage like performing or something with one of the bands. It's hard to tell. On okay. IMDb, he's listed uh, as having played himself on one episode in 2018, which would have been season two, I think. That makes sense. Yeah, and I believe that. They're not our first band to be involved with the MCU. No, they're not. That is cool. They might be the first ones to be involved with music, though, I think. I mean, Miley Cyrus did a cameo. Someone else had a cameo in the MCU as well, but I don't think we talked about it. Oh, Childish Gambino, of course, Mm -hmm. Donald Glover was there. But there was another, even still. Even still. Anyway, jumping back into our first dream, you know, woke up again and went back to sleep, and now we're back in dream number one. Uh, their documentary. They have a documentary. Met when they were two. Met, met, in quotation marks, when they were two. Uh-huh. This is the beginning of what, uh, I need to warn the Spinet Art Department to get ready for more baby photoshopping, because this is the beginning of a list of baby-related information you will be getting on these next, uh, three facts. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> so they met when they were two. Met when they were two. First decided to start making music together when they were, like, nine. And does the documentary, I mean, it's probably just them telling stories and showing pictures and stuff right or is it like a documentary once they started making a band is there footage of stuff yeah i think so when did it come out 2011 okay so like after they kind of had broken up but before they were done for good sure i'm gonna say this is also a fact i think that we had two fact exceptions i think whatever this is <laughs> i think this one's another fact they're a pretty notable band in hip-hop history and development pretty pivotal so mm. They've probably made documentaries about people that are less important, so I'm taking a fact. This is a fact. Two for two. I don't like this. I don't like where this is going. That's good. That's good. Up next, our next baby-related fact. Okay, now let's. I want to make sure you contain them to their (laughs) own fact this time. Are you prepared to do that? Yes, I am prepared. Okay, it's a thing we've only done 330 times. <laughs> the Lowen Theory has a famous baby rival. What does that mean? <laughs> this is an album. A famous baby rival. So are you just telling me that a famous baby hated this album? Or does this album have another <laughs> album that like came out when it did that it was rivals with? Oh, what? Oh, he's oh. sparking up a tree. Is it the right tree? I don't know. It is the right tree. It is the right tree. So another 1991-ish album had a rivalry with this one. Yeah, in a way. In a way. You could call it that. Is it? I don't want to ask for the album yet. I want to try and get clues. Okay. Is it a rival because it's in the same genre? (laughs) No. Okay. Well, that narrows down a couple albums. Was it a rival because of the artist involved in making it? Uh, no. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Did it come out in 1991 on the dot or was it a little before or after? 1991. Who's it by? Who's the album by? Who's the album by? Like the other one? Yeah. Not this one. I know who this one's by. <laughs> Just, well, that kind of gives away the answer is the problem. Okay, okay. Well, then what's the album? What's the rival album? The album is one that we've done way back in the day. Nevermind by Nirvana. Nirvana. Wow. It's been, that's episode four. Yeah, that's episode four. Think of how many times we've doubled since then. <laughs> that was a double. It was, yeah. Nirvana's Nevermind and its controversial baby cover photo came out the exact same day oh. as the Low End Theory. Really? Same day? Same exact day. That's the fact. Interesting. The baby rival has nothing to, I mean, that's just because there's a baby on the cover and it was a new <laughs> album at the same time. Uh, well, yeah, and they kind of went back and forth on who was in the lead in terms of doing better. Performance wise sales wise and stuff yeah the low in theory you know hit number 45 on the billboard 200 pretty quickly but that's where it kind of plateaued 
Whereas Nevermind debuted at 144, so lower on the list, but within like a month of its release, topped the chart and so surpassed it. Wow. And so there was kind of that rivalry going on. I like that. This is a good fact. Both albums are also considered some of the most influential of all time in their respective genres and helped dictate the direction of music in the 90s. Absolutely they did. So in that sense, they're kind of rivals as well. Well, and Nirvana got that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination way earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a, another rivalry. Is this a thing that you just picked up on and put together yourself, or is like there a reason that people compare these two albums specifically? No, I'm just good at my research. Bravo. I like that. The Mixtapers Research Department dug this one up. My research department is just me and the in the Gover. Oh, okay. Well, the Gover's good at digging stuff up. Yeah, exactly. So they don't really... <laughs> have a rivalry with nirvana he's kurt cobain's not out here spitting all over pianos i didn't say that they had a rivalry with nirvana now did i i said that the low in theory had a rivalry with a baby right (laughs) well (laughs) i don't even think you said that but but okay yeah it's scary because you just made this up i'm like (laughs) you found the facts and all that i but yeah, everything you're saying I think is correct. I'm going to say it's a fact. Only fact. Yeah, and that scares me because it's, that's a lot of facts in a row. This is. All I had to do is change the date. We knew they both came out in 1991. That's true. <laughs> all I had to do is make them say that they were the same date. That's true. And so I can't believe you've been bamboozled into this being another fact. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't bamboozled a bit, you dastard. If, if anything, you bamboozled me at the end a little bit. Yeah. It was too dangerous for you, because what if I just remembered that Nevermind came out on September 24th, 1991? I would have been impressed. I would have been real impressed if you remembered the exact date. That would have been impressive. Now, I'm going to have to memorize all of them. <laughs> That's my new goal. Isn't that a good fact, though? It's a really cool fact, yeah, and it ties back into the podcast. Like yeah. we've, we've talked about both of those albums in great detail. Uh-huh, That's why I saw that, and I was like, ooh. Nifty. Now... I have to point out, this does officially begin a new streak. Oh, does it? I don't like that. I'm <laughs> going to Elvis me again. I just know it. <laughs> I should not speak before it's time. I'm counting chickens before they hatch. <laughs> and eggs are so expensive, I really can't afford to do that. Yeah, exactly. So, up next on our baby-related facts. We're going back, and then this is how it ties into what was started as fact number one, but became fact number two. <laughs> Fact number two. And then we skipped over where it was related to fact number three. And now it's related to fact number four. This is a little jumbled mess. <laughs> this is what happens when I don't let you pick the order. It ends up the same. I'm out of practice. Some of your fact sets are really tight with like themes and, yeah. and titles and stuff. Even Elvis, you did three law enforcement officers in a row. And you just got to get your groove back. The mixtaper's new groove. <laughs> We mentioned in the documentary that Q-Tip and Fife Dog met when they were two. Yeah. And you said met, but that didn't really count. Well, I'm telling you, it did count because it was a very interesting way of meeting. Yeah? Okay. How'd they meet? They were found having devoured all of the church snacks. (laughs) Okay. So... What kind of church snacks? Like, like I don't know, donuts and and stuff, or like communion wafers and. <laughs> communion what's, what do you wafers. mean church snacks? <laughs> it's, it was a church that had like a little daycare, um, youth. What, what do they call it? Like the Sunday school stuff for 
for like a little Sunday school class together. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like the little, all the babies and little kids go to while the adults are doing the adult thing. And so, you know, as part of the Sunday school daycare thing, they'd have little snacks for the kids to eat. Okay, and none of the other kids. (laughs) Got to eat any? Not really. No, they pretty much... I don't know if there was any salvaged, but um, in the photo that was in the documentary, it was the two of them, you know, just covered as a two-year-old would be in icing because there was cupcakes and then there was like chips and pretzels all over the ground from where they just knocked all the little cups off the table. Oh, no. Like they basically destroyed the snack table. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that is an interesting first encounter. It was like nobody keeping an eye on them. I mean... They they just said that somehow they got away from from the adults and the rest of the group and decided they were hungry and (laughs) went all Godzilla on the snack table. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I said I had a specific order because I needed to do the documentary one before this one. And then I was like, and I also wanted to make sure the two baby ones were together. And then I realized because the documentary one tied into this one, it also was baby related and so really should have been second. Well, I feel like this one really should have been third. Yeah, but it was, I felt it was a better final final ramp. ramp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think this is, oh, tough here. Oh, he he hesitated. You could go all facts. This feels like one you'd make up, but I don't think it is. I think this is a fact. Oh, locking in fact, an all fact week. I think maybe you've, yeah, pulled a second all fact week. Wow. At least so far. This is a spin. Oh, <laughs> oh man. I knew it. I knew it deep down. (laughs) And you see, they did meet when they were two. So I found in some articles I found did say they met at church, but nothing about destroying any snack tables. Well, that's a shame. I thought it was going to be like butter, baby. I thought I was going to just nail it all perfect week. And since it's now one to three, I have two bonus. No, I don't. I don't. Not this time. Uh, unfortunately it wouldn't surprise me but i would definitely not expect them to be facts i did have actually one safety one but you uh had it in your rundown so (laughs) i knew it yay (laughs) well congratulations on another fun round of factor spin i always love factor spin it's one of my favorite parts of the episode another like 53 hours of coping with the loss Anyway, I'm out of here. This was a fun week. I think we had some fun, interesting facts. Yeah, we'll be able to look back on this one day and laugh. And one fun, interesting spin. Yeah. And until then... Is he gonna... Yeah. Oh, oh, well, that makes me feel a little sad. Goodbye, mixtaper. May your morning be rejuvenative. Is that a word? Rejuvenating. I liked rejuvenative. Yeah. And welcome back, Connor. It's me. Not the mixtaper, just Connor. (laughs) That was just you. (laughs) Yeah, I can see why people might be confused by that. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this album. I think you're going to have some really interesting takeaways from this. I mean, before we get into it, I guess we should talk about the album art. As is tradition, the album art for the low-end theory is actually an altered photograph. I thought for the longest time it was just a straight-up painting, but it's not. It is a woman kneeling and painted in red, black, and green colors that are representative of their Afrocentric ideology. Their signature logo, their little circle symbol, is down there on her lower back. And I love that logo, by the way. The Tribe Called Quest with the little stick figures in the middle. It's really cool. Yeah, the mixtaper did also have some information that he came across about who they originally wanted for the photo. Oh, yeah? But he was afraid you'd have that information. Well, I don't. So he would have been maybe a little better off if he'd done that. He also didn't save that tab uh, with the information, so he doesn't know who it was. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Just that there was someone they wanted and there was scheduling issues, so they couldn't get them. Cool trivia. (laughs) 
Sorry, I'm not the mixtaper. I can't have all the information. Nope. But it says the title of the album, A Longer Back, The Low End Theory. Also, did you say earlier, and I missed it, why they named themselves A Tribe Called Quest? No. Do we know why? It actually was kind of from an accident. They, you know, like I said, were just going by the name Quest. And Q-Tip introduced the band on a demo. He said this track is from a group called Quest. But the Jungle Brothers heard him say that, and they said, no, no, you should say you're from A Tribe Called Quest instead of A Group Called Quest. And that is what made the name stick. Interesting. I love the colors on this album cover. And the way it's just on solid black, like it really makes everything pop. In 2011, Complex deemed it the very best, number one best hip-hop album cover of all time, which is pretty cool. That's a high honor. Eh. You said, eh? Eh. I don't know how to interpret your noises. Use your words. <laughs> but anyway, like I was starting to get into before, we should talk about the album and, and get your, your thoughts on it and my thoughts on it. But I'm excited to hear what you have to think because you've talked about before, especially with our Barry Manilow's and our Michael Bublé's. You like jazz. Sure do. That's that's kind of more in your wheelhouse, the soft, easy listening, the contemporary pop kind of music. Mm-hmm. And this obviously, in a lot of ways, isn't that. <laughs> but it does it does weave a lot of that into it. Uh, here's the thing you really like. This isn't it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, true. And it's not. But I don't know. That, that might produce some interesting opinions from you. We'll have to wait and see. Okay. Also... I should mention at the top, these are some wordy songs. I was mentioning before the episode, it may be one of the most lyric-heavy albums we've done, just in terms of quantity. I'd love to know, actually, which album we've listened to has the most words spoken, but this has to be up there. So we probably have to leave a lot of lyrics on the table. But again, what's really notable about the record is just the way that they interact with each other and trade verses back and forth. It's a give and take and ebb and flow. And that was really the band's light bulb moment with The Low End Theory. So that's what this album is really all about and it kicks off with a track by q-tip as he talks about his own experiences with hip-hop on excursions let's spin it oh yeah let's (laughs) let's what did you think of excursions it's i mean the low end theory it starts right off with that low end bass Mm -hmm. it started the music started I listened to this album knowing nothing about who the band was, what their music was, anything. Mm -hmm. I even listened to this before the mixtaper found all of his facts and dug into who the band was. Oh, that is the blindest of blinds, yeah. He didn't even have any way of warning me. So it started, and that music started, and I was like, man, why did James think I wasn't going to like this? And then the lyrics started, and I went, oh, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a rap album. Yeah, I didn't know that going into it. I saw it was like hip-hop-y. Right, but hip-hop doesn't necessarily mean rap. No, as we saw with Lil Nas X and Montero. Yeah. But we're going to go track by track so as not to give away my uh, thoughts on the album as a whole too early. Naturally. You were wrong when it comes to this song, at least. Okay. I'll be pleasantly surprised by that all day. Because this album does two things. Uh, I should say this doesn't do two things that modern day rap does do that I don't care for. Okay. Is it stuff you talked about before? In a way, kind of. I think so. I think it's come up. Okay. One, it's understandable. They're rapping. They're going fast. They're speaking fast. But it's not mumble rap. It's not to the point that you can't understand any of the words if they're not right in front of you. Oh, yeah. Clear as a bell. You can listen to this without the lyrics and understand it. Yeah. And two, there are not bleeps and curse words every other word. Nor are they just rhyming the same word over and over at the end of their sentence, like some uh, rap does. Yeah, they go to great lengths, in fact, to avoid doing just that. <laughs> and we'll talk about that, too. So, so, so I guess those three things that I just mentioned, there are a lot of things that modern-day rap likes to do 
that I don't care for. Yeah. And you can kind of see, again, going back to the influence on the genre and of the music of the 90s, you can see how we started here and got to where we are now. Big time. You can see how this was kind of the start and the influence. Yes, and that's one of the things I love about it is, I guess in the same way we kind of talked about with Murmur being the granddaddy of alt-rock, this one is is one of the granddaddies of hip-hop. And it's cool to see all the things that you can like pick out elements. Oh, I hear stuff like this now in this music or that music. And I also kind of worry about maybe listening to this album, you might get the, the Murmur effect. Mm. We're having all kinds of effects today where it maybe doesn't sound as impressive because we've come so far from it and seen so many things build upon the foundations that this stuff lays. So that's definitely a thing you could experience listening to this if you didn't grow up with it or you're not familiar with it, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it does suffer from that a little bit. I have to agree. Even for me, yeah, I I think it does, which is a shame because it's no fault of the albums. Obviously, they couldn't have predicted or prepared for people... 30 years in the future picking this up. Yeah, you know, in 1991, they could not have sat down and done all of the lights. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, that would have been wild. But yeah, this album, I mean, it's 14 tracks long and, and front to back, it's going to sound a lot of the same. You'll hear some very similar things the entire time. But I think this is a fun album and it's meant to be listened to. I mean, as a fun album, cover to cover. And that's not to say they don't have good points and have messages to convey and things to say because there are definitely some statement tracks on here but in general i think they're just going with the flow having a good time making music and inviting the audience to like participate in that and that's really unique excursions starts off the album and they talk about how everything here is jazz inspired on the whole album he talks about bobby brown is amping like michael and how this song and this album is kind of just music repeating itself it's history echoing back on things that came before and building upon it this song samples a chant for boo by Art Blakely and the Jazz Messengers. And again, that bass line is a thing that they really prominently lifted. Love it. And the lyrics... Uh, at least a portion of them, are from a poem called Time, written by Uman bin Hassan and performed by the last poets. Uh, they say, Time is a ship on a merciless sea. Time is dancing, boogalooing away all memories of the past. I like that. Some of the rhymes on this song and beyond, I mean, we'll see it throughout the record, they're a little reachy, a little bit, but not in a bad way, necessarily. Some, but for the most part, they're pretty good. Well, that's, what, that's just it. Maybe the rhymes themselves aren't reachy. What I'm trying to say is... It's the line. Yeah, they like to invert the syntax and rephrase things in ways that sometimes maybe are a little clunky to reach a satisfying rhyme it's kind of a hallmark of early hip-hop and especially tribe to do it that way so like take for example the line so what can you do in the times which exist you can't fake moves on your brother or your sis like that's i would never in colloquial speech i feel like most people wouldn't express that that way what can you do in the times which exist no but that's a good example of something that defined the later genre right because again that's something that still exists mm -hmm. today where a lot of rap music is known for that for like saying things in a way that necessarily wouldn't be how you'd say them normally but we've gotten a lot better at it <laughs> right I think we've gotten better at building up to it or making when you do it a bigger like mic drop moment sort of thing. Yeah, because it is everywhere. Yeah. It's rampant in this album. It's not a mic drop moment because it's you got to keep going through the whole song. Yeah. But I think it's a testament to their lyricism and how well they can write a lyric. Just the way that you can creatively say, I mean, and express some very similar sentiments in such varied and diverse ways. I think it's endearing and pretty clever. And over music like this that's sampled and so 
drum-driven and bass-driven. I think it really pulls this style of phrasing off like few other records or genres or bands could. Mm -hmm. They're really, uh, as you might say, bugging out which is track two on the record. And Buggin' Out is the song that really kind of put Fife Dog on the map. It was his breakout moment. Yeah. Just as an artist. This one has some funny lyrics. It sure does. Uh, one of my personal favorites, uh, you want to diss the Pfeiffer, but you still don't know the half in verse one. I just like diss the Pfeiffer. Yeah. But also a pretty good play on words of the word decipher. Yeah, it is. You Like you want to decipher, but you still don't know the half. So it works. It's a fun little play there. Yeah, it's it's a little buried, a little hidden. I also just like drink a lot of soda so they call me Dr. Pepper. <laughs> like what? Never has there been a more relatable line. Dr. Pepper is, yeah. is pretty good. And I love that it's there and it rhymes with I never half step because I'm not a half stepper. <laughs> Right, certified poetry. But that's exactly why Fife Dog blew up. It's for the humor and the just craftiness of lines just like that. He actually talked about coming in to record this verse and bugging out and how it was received by everyone when they heard him. He said he was writing his rhyme on the train. He says, I went in there and spit my verse and then just remember walking back into the control room and everybody being like, yo, you've arrived. Which is, I mean, that's got to be a good feeling. Just to hear everybody you're working with say, that was awesome and you made it. I also like the potential multiple meanings of bugging out as a phrase. You know, it's got a couple different layers. It could be this case where you're fleeing from something. You're acting out a character. You could be of unsound mind for some reason. Other uses, people talk about bugging out when you're tripping on drugs or acting like you are when you're sober, etc., etc. A lot of different ways that that could be interpreted. So one thing that both the two tracks we've done so far that I haven't liked is the chorus. Yeah. Well, that's because I feel like the choruses are less of... They're not what... The meat and potatoes isn't in the chorus on a rap song. Right. And actually, in most like pop music or other styles of music, I think the chorus serves as a touchstone to keep us connected to the story as we move forward. In general, in music, I feel like that's meant to be the purpose of it. That's why it's repeated. And then the verses are supposed to outline the story. It's true. But I think in these songs and in this genre style, the chorus almost acts as a palate cleanser. It's like, okay, we're through that verse. Now we're going to step back, totally disconnect from that as we engage in the chorus, and then we're going to come back to another verse. Mm -hmm. So it almost has the opposite purpose of a normal chorus. Instead of propelling us forward, it it pulls us back out, which is different. I think it just depends on your view of indirection. You could argue it's pushing you forward into the next one. That's true. It's pulling you out of the current one and putting you into the next one. Fair enough. In this case in particular, though, I do think the chorus is bugging out. (laughs) And it's so sad that we're up to like, 800 or something for the spin it repetitive award because this would have been a contender in the early days yeah uh with you know somewhere around like 60 70 80 buggins yeah it definitely would have been up there stevie wonder just had to go and take it all away (laughs) the music video for bugging out which also was paired with jazz we got was a real groundbreaker too and people point to the music video as having a lasting influence on the genre which is neat in an era before music videos were really all that you know Mm -hmm. my favorite lines you talked about the the dr pepper and the stepper and decipher my favorite lines include when you bug out you usually have a reason for the action sometimes you don't it's just for mere satisfaction (laughs) i love how that line just says it asserts something and then undoes it instantly i think it's kind of fun it's like listen if you're gonna if you're gonna go crazy there's a reason unless you just felt like doing unless it. there's not <laughs> yeah or you soar off to another world deep in your mind but people seem to take that as being unkind 
That's just clever. That is clever. That's just good. But that's bugging out. I could promote that rap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Rap promoter is up next. And this is one of those songs that was really inspired by some of the shady stuff going on with their record labels and, and their promoters. It's a cautionary tale to new rappers about the harder side of the music business, about how corrupt and shady rap promoters can actually be taking a lot of money and, you know, the band never questions whether it's actually worth it. This song references something that's come up more than a handful of times on the podcast yeah the concept of a writer a writer yeah it has come up a couple in verse two q-tip says i want chicken and orange juice that's what's on my writer and in fact we've talked about chicken being on a writer before you know what we have (laughs) very specifically connected just missing the orange juice yeah maybe next week who knows this song samples from some interesting places it takes drums from keep on doing it by the new birth and the guitars from long way down by eric mercury but the part that surprised me the most is it samples a little bit of peter paul and mary's leaving on a jet plane which i didn't necessarily hear at all when i was listening to it Mm-mm. it snuck in there but that's a really interesting interpolation <laughs> what i love about this part of the song too is this little bit where they do a little role play where Fife is the promoter and Q-Tip maintains his role as the artist. Yeah. And they go back and forth and debate and deliberate whether he's worth the money he's being paid. Nice little skit kind of thing. And, oh, we got to talk about the iconic outro, Diggy Dang Diggy Dang. <laughs> What'd you think? <laughs> yep. So, actually, you mentioned the concept of the Lil Wayne effect. Yeah. I've heard Diggy Dang before. I don't know what in what context. But that I've heard that. <laughs> I don't know where, I don't know when, but I've heard it. I think that part's supposed to be a reference to a song called Making Cash Money by Busy B. That sounds like it could be what, what I know it from. All I know is I've heard Diggy Dang before. <laughs> uh-huh. The Lil Wayne effect strikes again. Need like a little uh, gong we can ring. The little the, the Lil, Lil Wayne, Wayne gong. gong. <laughs> Why? Bong. Like just a little mysterious like Lil Wayne. <laughs> I can hear it in my head now. And now it's going to happen. Now every time the Lil Wayne effect, I'm going to make a Lil Wayne gong sound effect. Yes, sir. The next song is like Butter, baby. What do you think of Butter? I loved the uh, music on this one. This one had some great... Uh, this one I felt really influenced by jazz. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some chord progressions in here that are just unmatched. I love the way this song is structured. It sounds good. Butter's one of the most popular songs from the album, uh, or at least one of the most talked about. I also actually enjoyed the chorus on this one. Yeah, and that's probably because of the jazz that's underneath it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> the saxophones and the, the smooth... Also, just the ending of the course with that not no parquet not no margarine <laughs> strictly butter strictly butter baby i can't believe it's not butter yeah. <laughs> or in this case i can't believe it is butter this song actually was originally supposed to be a normal standard track with tip and fife trading verses but fife really wanted to do it solo so they scrapped q-tips verse and just let him do the chorus apparently i can't believe it's not butter was invented in 1979 so yeah it would have existed for this oh it would have been around yeah i can't believe i can't believe it's not butter is that old (laughs) would you said it i had the thought it was like would that exist and so i googled it i said when was i can't believe it's not butter invented and google says 1979 now you know yeah we're the we're probably the music podcast with the most information about butter out there the jh filbert company based in baltimore maryland developed the product in 1979 as a low-cost alternative to butter for the food service industry oh the name originated from a comment by the husband of a company secretary as he sampled the product and it was first marketed to retail consumers in 1981 interesting well now you know it's like butter baby imagine being that secretary's husband responsible for an iconic 
phrase. I'd want, I'd want royalties, honestly. Pay me. Well, this song is not about I can't believe it's not butter, and I can't believe it's not I can't believe it's not butter. It's about actual butter. It is about actual butter. Well, not really. <laughs> it's about how five smooths with the ladies are smooth like butter. He says it started out when he was young, dating left and right during school, and again, some of that awesome reverse syntax. I was the b-ball playing, fly rhyme slaying, fly girl getting, but never was I sweating. What a line. <laughs> I mean, come on. And and he meets this girl, Flo, who he wins over with ease. And after this long relationship that they go through, you'd think that he would have lost his touch and kind of be rusty or out of it, you know. But no, after all these years, when things finally come to an end, he's still as smooth as butter. That's pretty much the song. I really enjoy it, much like you. I just love that jazz background. It's a solid track, which is funny because butter is a squishy food. Yeah, I got nothing else. Track number five is Verses from the Abstract, and as if Q-Tip did not... (laughs) have enough nicknames already (laughs) one of his other popular nicknames is the abstract so it's kind of a multi-layered title because a lot of the song is is about dreams and unusual things and he uses some unconventional vocal rhythms here but also it's just verses from q-tip you can kind of substitute his name in there (laughs) this song also is notable because it features the work of bassist ron carter who is the most recorded jazz bassist in history he's appeared on more than two thousand 1,221 recordings, and it features the return of Vinia Magica on vocals, who worked with the Tribe's debut album in a couple different skits, and who they decided to bring back on the Low End Theory. And the main thing I remember about Versus from the Abstract, if I ever forget which one it is, I just need to remember, oh, this is the one where everyone's in the house. Ah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> they shout out all their collaborators and producers and friends and bandmates. Everybody's in the house. I don't know, what'd you think? I don't know, I don't even really remember remember this one much until you said that what you said (laughs) i was like oh yeah yeah see it's the in the house one well i guess if you didn't remember it then there's not much point (laughs) lingering on it yeah unfortunately i think it's a good song it's all right it's a good song but it does get lost right after butter and you're still riding the high the butter high (laughs) i'm still riding the butter high (laughs) yeah the next track on the album is show business and this is an interesting one once again it is very similar to Rap Promoter in its themes about the backside, behind the curtains of the show business and stuff. Mm-hmm. They reworked this song from a song they'd previously cut called Georgie Porgy. It samples the drums from Aretha Franklin's Rock Steady, and it also features several other members of their posse too, including some members of Brand Nubian and DITC. It samples James Brown, the Fatback Band, Ferrante, and Tyker, and the Gerson King combo. Interesting. Mm-hmm. This one's interesting. I like the way that it starts with vocals and then picks up the drums and starts the beat. It's kind of got a nice pickup into the song, which I think just energizes you right off the bat. What happened with this one is that the label didn't really love the Georgie Porgy, the original song. So what they decided to do was change it into a track that was very critical of their label and emphasized what Q-Tip calls Industry Rule 4080, which states that, and I quote, record company people are shady. (laughs) That's Rule 4080. And he pretty much does just lay into these money-hungry industry moguls, kind of like Childish Gambino Donald Glover did on his track Zombies. He really takes them to town, says they're a cesspool, and they're just leeches trying to build off of the band's success and talent. And in fact, Fife actually jumps on a verse and complains about how labels undervalue their work and sell it for less than it's worth to make a quick profit. 
profit. And this is a great example, I think, of one of their statement songs. You know, some of these songs are just fun. Butter, just fun. Verse from the abstract, just fun. But like, a lot of these songs have stuff to say. The song's got a message behind it. And I think it's really cool that they're able to balance conviction and good times so seamlessly. So he has the line in there. Seems in 91, everybody wants a rhyme. And then you go and sell my tape for only $5.99. Yeah. It's pretty good. But five ninety nine in nineteen ninety one would be worth thirteen oh five today. Oh, that's like pretty normal album price, right? That's what I was thinking. Like for like a CD, uh, average CD cost. Hang on, yeah, the average, <laughs> the average full length CD sells for thirteen twenty nine. Oh, so they're actually like just a few cents off. <laughs> wow, so it's not like it for the average price. Interesting. Which is, I mean, yeah, still saying it's like if you really want my rhymes, why, why are you only paying the average price? I mean, it still works. I'm just saying the five ninety nine comment seems bad in today's market, but it's pretty average. <laughs> it's not as bad as it looks, even. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never would have thought of that. Good research. <laughs> Whenever I see dollar amounts, me and the mixed for both that's one thing we bond over is what is this dollar amount equal in today's money (laughs) Mm -hmm. you perspective you get monetary perspective yeah well we're getting to the halfway point here jumping into track seven vibes and stuff and uh i think the song is a little more laid back it indulges a little more it takes its time and takes off the edge which is really good i think at a point where we've just finished one of the most biting tracks on the record edgy songs on the album (laughs) yeah and aside from just being in general a vibey song the title is also a pun because the song features a vibraphone sample so vibes and stuff nice Mm, right i love it i love it the samples come from a 1970 grant green song called down here on the ground and uh that's pretty much pretty much it q-tip talks about his experience and motivation for making music like he does i like it vibes and stuff is a pretty chill song. I think it's a good addition to the album, especially in this halfway position to give us a second between show business and track eight, infamous date rape. Yeah. At first glance, this one might make you brace yourself in thinking it may be problematic, but in fact, it's another one of their statement songs, as it should be. It's a very anti-date rape song, and it came out during this era before people were really widely talking about the issues of it, and a lot of this stuff went unreported. People weren't taking it seriously, so this was their attempt to help kind of propel all these instances of sexual assault into the zeitgeist and get people talking about it. Yeah. In today's society, a song called infamous date rape would be just an actual song about date raping somebody so i can see why people would think it'd be problematic uh yeah not good (laughs) i feel like uh bracing yourself is is the smart move but unnecessary on this one yeah right it samples some songs from the early 70s and yeah lyrically (laughs) it's 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 a little edgy for what the podcast usually talks about but uh basically you know q-tip starts by directly acknowledging that it's a pretty big problem and he talks about all these reasons that you know you might want to reconsider you got to hit the road jack you know so anyway it's a little bit of an intense song but i think it gives a good glimpse of the band's kind of active mindset and how they try to bring all these awarenesses to real world problems in very different facets of life through a lot of their music indeed and then oh boy and then we get to what's one of my favorite songs uh check the rhyme and in fact check the rhyme is one of the record's most significant and game-changing songs people love it vh1 ranked at number 29 on their list of 100 greatest hip-hop songs i love check the rhyme it samples Minnie riperton's baby this love i have from 1975 and average white bands love your life from 1976 
And I just love, just a side note, isn't it so cool that they're just working to revive and repopularize all this music that's like 20-some years old? Stuff that they loved and grew up on, that they take and they twist and make it their own and lay beats and, and lyrics over top of it. It's so cool that they're able to do that. And what's crazy is that it, now somebody could come along the day and do the same thing to their music. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's a cycle that builds and builds and builds. And I'm sure people have, actually. I say Something so genre-defining probably has been. You already mentioned a cover of one of their songs. Yeah, it's true. It looks like I've just done a quick cursory Google search. And yeah, plenty of people have drawn from a lot of these tracks. So that's really cool. Once again, you know, Check the Rhyme is another song that, much like our Factor Spin today, delves into the group's beginnings and their history when they met and grew up and, and just their origins. And that's especially apparent through the music video of the song, which again has made quite a name for itself in its own right. I like Check the Rhyme and, and I wouldn't be surprised if it makes its way onto our playlist, but we won't find out for another five tracks. Wait and see. In the meantime, we've got to talk about track 10, Everything is Fair. When you're living in the city. It's another chorus I enjoyed. I like that part. Me too. The chorus is very fun. The hook actually comes from Funkadelic's Let's Take It to the People. And I think we also, we did talk about Funkadelic in the Childish Gambino episode, how he based some of his own music off of Funkadelic that he loved with his dad. And the drums are from Willis Jackson's famous Ain't No Sunshine. So this song is just a powerhouse of samples. It's a commentary about crime rates and trying to get by in New York City at the time. The group talked about some of the stuff that made them popular. And they said really what did it is because they didn't bother with fitting into a niche that was East or West Coast rap. Dr. Dre once said tribe was just about life. And that's what this song is exactly an example of. It's like real life. The other thing about Everything is Fair is this kind of a notable departure from the bassy low-end theory style on the rest of the record. It stays away from the deeper sound, hangs out on the higher end of the spectrum, and kind of gives you a different flavor for their music. Yeah. Which I like a little bit of a, of a change in texture. I like the song. It mostly focuses on this character, this woman who's speeding down the highway, who just never faces justice and gets caught up in this life of crime that never really leads her anywhere. But she's always going to try until she reaches the top. Another of the album's most popular tracks, and we've already mentioned it in its capacity as a music video partner for Buggin' Out, is track 11, Jazz. Parentheses, we've got. We got the jazz. We got the jazz. We got the jazz. We've got the jazz. It's another one of my favorites, but it's it's a little different. I don't think I would expect this one to be one of my favorites just by listening to it. And just something about it I really enjoy. It's another obviously significant nod to their jazz roots. Pete Rock came up with the idea for the beat, but Q-Tip reworked parts of it into what it is today. And I think it's just amazing how they can make so many of these lyrics about their childhood and their youth, like all these very similar themed lyrics. It's that syntax that just lets them switch it around and talk about it in a unique way every time. It's so impressive. And I gotta say, I bet jazz we've got is maybe one of the only times we as a podcast will ever encounter the word Massapequa in a song. All right, write it down, audience. Keep track of how long it takes us before we encounter it again. Yeah, so make note, make note. The uh, Tribe gets the Spin It Massapequa Award. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Now, you and I grew up in the era of cell phones. Uh, yeah, we, we were like right there on the precipice. Yeah. We didn't have phones as toddlers. Toddlers, they walk around with freaking iPhones. Do they? How many toddlers with iPhones do you know? I know at least two. Oh, who do you have to call? Who do you have to call when you're three? Uh, you know, they've got iPhones or iPads or whatever to play their little games, you know, just always in front of a screen to keep them quiet. Sure, yeah. We grew up like around like middle school or whatever. We got our first like flip phone or maybe a slide phone. Definitely nothing smart. So, <laughs> yeah. 
We were right there on the precipice. We know what it's like to be without, but now we don't have to be. We have the ability to be technologically savvy. Yeah. Well, Sky Pager is a song that's all about being technologically savvy. Yeah, we didn't have to deal with pagers. <laughs> that was before our time. That's just it. I mean, Sky Pager is a song all about people who have pagers having it the luxury of a pager. It's like not having to do without. You get to keep up with changing technology, and the song examines its effects on society. I mean, they talk about in the song how the only people who have sky pagers are like businessmen, really rich individuals. Yep, yep. Businessmen are drug dealers, and if you're at the top of the game, you've got the peak of technology, the sky pager, and you can use it for things like booty calls and and just all of it. Fair enough. And you just get beeped all the time because you're so popular, so important and necessary. Beep, beep, boop, boop. That's how a pager sounded. Yeah, for those of you who didn't know, (laughs) just like that. This song once again features the work of bassist Ron Carter, and it samples songs by Sly and the Family Stone and Eric Dolphy. And the irony in that, to me, is that even though the song is about newer, almost at the time futuristic technology, it still uses older samples than most of the rest of the album. The Sly and the Family Stone, their song Advice came out in like 1969. Eric Dolphy's 17 West is from the 1960s. Most of the rest of the albums come from the 70s. I think it's interesting to see the dichotomy of this new technology paired with the oldest music we we hear. I love it. And honestly, I, I know the Sky Pager itself is a little outdated. I think this song is aged well with the advent of cell phones. Mm. You could almost just insert cell phones into this metaphor, and it still just kind of works the same. Yeah. I've got a question for you. What? Yeah. (laughs) That was my question. How'd you know? What is the penultimate track on this album? It's a Q-tip track, and it's full of questions. Lots and lots of questions packed into this little two-and-a-half-minute song. The basic formula is what is something under a certain condition. Yeah. So he says, what's a party if it doesn't rock? What's a poet? What's a war without a general? What's Channel 9 without Arsenio? Yeah. It's an interesting kind of deconstruction of identity and what makes things the way that they are. Why is this a certain way? Boy, and there's a good one. There's a, again, one of those agenda lines in there again with what's America without greed and glamour. Like, ooh. Yeah. Oh, I love it. What is paper without a president? Another good one talking about money. Yeah. What's a fat man without food in his gut? What's a childbirth without the umbilical? There's just some interesting everything. He just asks about everything. Yeah. And it is just a really cool commentary on identity. He talks about, he says, what's Duke Ellington without that swing? Gotta love it. Another shout out to jazz. It don't mean a thing. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do up, do up, do up, do up, do up, do up. Right. (laughs) I do like that the line you mentioned, what's a childbirth without the umbilical, is then rhymed with what's United Parcels without the deliver, is like the next line. (laughs) Like those two things are back to back. Yeah, because you know what you do with a baby? You deliver them. I know, that's what I'm saying. It's, It's clever those two next to one another it really is but also what's united parcels without the deliver is just what we have today freaking ups always losing my packages <laughs> oh but drones though oh that's true yeah they shout out the karate kid what's martial arts without daniel son i just i love all the references in here we could probably just go forever on these references and stuff i don't know some of it's silly some of it's serious but at the end of the day the song flows really well and i think it makes you think which seems like a bulk of what they're trying to do on this album in the first place just just make you think and and ponder it's a good one it is what what's a quality track and that's not me asking that's me saying what's a quality track that takes us in the scenario i think we're there it sure does the album closes with scenario it's another one of the group's infamous posse cuts 
which notably led to the breakout moment for New School's Busta Rhymes. The song also got a cool limited edition remix that got pretty popular in 1998, a good half decade after the album dropped. It also made some top 100 of all time songs lists, notably that of Time Magazine. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Scenario samples the drums of someone we've only mentioned in passing so far, but we really could dig more into. The late Jimi Hendrix. Mm. He's come up several times. He's come up a lot. He's maybe one of our most mentioned, but no, never done an episode on artists. Is he? I, I I can think of several occasions he's come up. I can only think of two. I I think there's a third one. The 27 Club. Uh, Kurt Cobain, episode four, and Janis Joplin, episode 30. There was another. Didn't somebody dress up as him or something? Oh, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right after Janis Joplin, when we did Stevie Ray Vaughan, yes. he didn't dress up as Hulk Hogan. He borrowed a Jimi Hendrix costume from an impersonator. Yes. That's what it was. You're right. Look at you go. Anyway, Hendrix, keep an ear out. I wouldn't even be surprised if there's like a fourth one out there somewhere that we're both forgetting because I just know he's come up a lot. You might be right. But the song of his that this takes from is Little Miss Lover. Mm. And the bass line comes from Brother Jack McDuff's 1970 track, Obligato. I like Scenario. It's fine. It's another fun song. It's a fun song. Yeah. It's got some good references in it. It sure does. Yeah. Scenario is a good way to wrap up the album. It's actually one of the album's longest tracks. At four minutes and ten seconds, I think it's tied for second place. There's also, uh, it has a great one last line to mention. Yeah? What's the scenario? It's the roar, roar like a dungeon dragon. <laughs> yeah. Which is a uh, good, what I assume is reference to Dungeons and Dragons. You are probably right. Dungeons and Dragons, or D&D, was first published in 1974. Yeah, it's old. So another thing they could have been well aware of. Just playing Dungeons and Dragons and eating, I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> well, are you ready for final spin? I guess. Awesome. I guess so too. This is an interesting album to score. It always is. With these foundational, sometimes like genre-defining albums, they get a little tricky to score. And I think a lot of my scores on this one are based on that murmur effect of it being the first and me being familiar with things that came later. So this one sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. But also, I feel like that's fair. Just because something was first doesn't mean it's the best. Well, that's true, too. Yeah, I can change the game and still have a way to go. Just because it changed the game doesn't mean it's the best at the game. That's true. That's true. As far as music goes, there's not a lot of singing on this album, and there's frankly not even a lot of chord structures in a lot of spots on this album. The samples they choose are really innovative and cool, and I think those generally work pretty well, but it is, I mean, with the low-end theory like I talked about, it's a lot of bass, a lot of drums, and there's a big empty space in the middle on a lot of these songs where they leave a lot of the other things you just include in a song bare and i like that it really emphasizes their vocals and the lyrics but as far as music goes it's not like there's a ton there to work with i'm giving music a 74 lyrics are all right again they're clever they're good and the inverted syntax is interesting and varied and stuff but there's so many lyrics on this album (laughs) it is wordy i mean a lot of these songs like i said are shorter most of them are under three minutes in length and they cram so many words into there. It's impressive, downright impressive. And their wordplay is really clever, really fun. I'm given lyrics a 76. Instruments and production, once again, great choices on the samples. Really cool and engaging. It is a little samey. I think a lot of these songs are borderline indistinct and indistinguishable from each other in some cases. You know, you were going through this list. I mean, you just listened to this album and there were songs that you were like, hmm, I don't know if I remember that one, which is, I think, mostly a result of the production kind of staying similar on all of them. And it's not bad. 
necessarily. Actually, I think it's quite good for the time and the era and what they had available to them. I'm giving it a 75. And the overall vibe, this is a fun album. I like that it, like I've talked about several times, strikes a good balance between lighthearted fun and conveying serious messages. It's obviously quite historically significant. And it was a really cool album to dig into and get to know. So I'm giving it an 82 on vibe, which puts its overall score at a 77.3 and lands it at number 514 on the spreadsheet, which is deceptively low for how much I like and respect what this album set out to do and actually accomplished. And for my playlist pick, I would really love to wait and see what you take. Mm -hmm. But if I were to just pick on my own, I'd probably be taking Check the Rhyme. Okay. I think for me, we start with my top three. Absolutely. And I only get three. I don't get my honorable mention. Nope. You Because you uh, advised me to take extra last week because I, quote, would not need it this week. Well, I did say that, yeah. I'm here to tell you, I would have liked to have had it. Really? That's reassuring and encouraging, actually. I do have to commend you for keeping most of your thoughts close to the chest. I am not quite sure where this one's going to land for you. I know where it, it won't be, but I don't know where it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to have had the honorable mention be able to be said, but, you know, what am I to do? Okay, now, that's enough. What? No, I'm no, saying. no, I'm no. I'm just saying. <laughs> it would have been nice. Yes. Whatever. What? Okay. <laughs> Well, what are you... My top three <laughs> in album order, excursions. Right off the bat. Right off the bat. Followed up with butter. Like butter, baby. Followed up by check the rhyme. Uh-huh. That's a good three. Some of you might be asking, what is my honorable mention? Can't tell you. Nope. Nope. Can't say. That mostly matches my top three, except I'd maybe swap out excursions for something like jazz mm. or bugging out, maybe. But that's it. Where do you think this one's going? As from a score. It's anybody's guess. <laughs> I can see this ending somewhere between a high five and a low seven. Mm. Well, this one gets a nine. What? As its unit. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's preluded by (laughs) a five for its score. So it gets five (laughs) nines. Why did you give a unit that's a nine? Simply because I wanted to throw you off when I said nine and make you, like, (laughs) almost pass out in disbelief. I was so shocked. I was like, wow, you really liked it a lot more than I thought you would. Like, I never could have guessed. That's so funny and awful. Man, that's so mean. That's in the range of where I was thinking. It gets a five only because I don't want to put it below Kanye. Yeah, uh uh-huh. If I had ranked Kanye properly back on episode three, this might have actually slipped down into the fours. Whoa. But I'm going to put it right above Kanye with five nines out of ten. Okay. That's a 45. (laughs) Unbelievable. Okay, well, what's that playlist pick? For the playlist... I kind of think I'm going to go with track number one, Excursions. Really? Over Butter? Yeah. I can't believe it's not Butter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That was funny. Thank you. I didn't set out to make that joke, but it happened. And I assume you'll do it with Check the Rhyme then. Oh, yeah. I'm sticking with Check the Rhyme. It's too good. Well, there you have it. There you have it indeed. Our 
complete and unabridged thoughts on A Tribe Called Quest's The Low End Theory. If you're looking for more Spin It, as you probably are if you've made it this far, you can find us on Twitter at Spin It Pod, on Instagram at Spin It Pod Official, and on our website, www. That part's important. SpinItPod.com, where you can find all the episodes, all the information, all the blooper reels, all the Spin It on the Roads, of which there is one. All of it, though. It's all there. And we'll see you next week. Keep spinning. Keep spinning. Good. That was a pretty good Hell Freezes Over episode. Yeah. Now we can go back to being lifelong friends again. Collaborators and friends once again. Yeah. So I'm reading more about I Can't Believe Stop Butter. <laughs> and, and apparently <laughs> Fabio has been the brand's celebrity spokesman since 1994. What? Did not know that. He's appeared in many of the brand's commercials, usually with his only line of dialogue being the brand name. I can't believe it's not someone else. I can't believe it's Fabio. (laughs) 